This is Cinephile. This is incredible. Moonlight won Best Picture. One of the best actors alive here on the studio, Billy Bob Thornton. Great to see you, man. The point of good acting is that you're supposed to be real. Be real. Great to have here on Cinephile Ice Cube, my new best friend. Yeah, yeah, man. Here's the man himself, Robert De Niro. Who can tell what a reaction will be to a film that nobody knows? Vigo Mortensen. It's one of those movies that when it finishes, you go, now what's going to happen? Big guest, Mark Wahlberg. Ted was one of those pivotal moments in my career, like Boogie Nights, where, you know, the subject matter just seems so ridiculous and absurd, yet when reading the script, you know, you never want to put it down. Cinephile. Cinephile. The Adnan Verk Movie Podcast. Oh, man, I just got finished saying how you have to be on point, Vogue is Jim Brackmeyer, and I completely punted that one. Our third open here on Cinephile. Thanks to Randy for putting that together. Good little pastiche of voices. Not only myself, kind of just identifying the actor, Mark Wahlberg, but then he tells a story about Boogie Nights and uh, selling the star power of Cinephile. And at the end, you heard there, Jim Brockmire. That's Hank Azaria. It's Jim Brockmire, currently on IFC. It's a fun voice to do. As much as I like doing Michael Caine, I want you to start doing Brock Mart. It's tough to turn it down. Toronto Blue Jays. What's going on there, Dan Stanzik? 2-11. and 11. Did you read Buster Olney's column? Sell him off. Jay Happ, you're done. Speaking, I got a Hank Azaria follow-up in just a second. But thank you, as always, for listening to Cinephile. Episode 26. So the next one's going to be the one-year anniversary of Cinephile, if you can believe it. Dan, start thinking of celebrations. Well, we will definitely have a shirt giveaway. Wait, wouldn't this be the one-year anniversary then? If this is 26, 52 weeks in a year? No, I got it. math? No, is there a no, Canadian no, no. 26 is the full year? No, if it was January 1st was, let's say, week one, then December 15th would be 26. You go two a month. There's not 25. I think you're wrong there. No, listen, there's 12. No. I was going to go 12 months of the year times two is 24. So then last time would have been 25. That would have been the one-year anniversary. But I'm going by math, which is mid-May is when we started. So currently we're in mid-April. Either way. Next time we're starting. All right. Next year's going to be the one-year anniversary of actually the first uh, recorded podcast and first released podcast. The first movie ever uh, reviewed on Cinephile. It was actually just a uh, a pilot. I didn't think Dan would be so uh, brusque enough to just throw it out there. But it was The Jungle Book. And I mean, that, that episode, I was very fast. I was talking too fast. We didn't have a lot of time because I figured, well, we're just trying to go through the works. And then you just put it out there. And then Genesini was like, wow, you were talking way too fast. I'm like, well, I didn't, I didn't know we were actually going to put it. I thought it was a pilot. Like I thought it was just going to be tinkered. But then you sent it to the masses. And then your answer, which was very clever, which was. I don't remember my answer. I just know I was aggressive and posted it right away. Aggressive. I didn't want to hear no. I was just like, we did it. We did the work. Let's just get it out there. Right. Your answer was uh, something about like, do it, beg for forgiveness after. What's oh, that? everybody knows that phrase. It's easier to ask for forgiveness than it is to ask for permission. <laughs> See? Exactly. That was the Dan Stanzik uh, model that we've been following here. So we threw it out there. Uh, so we've got the one-year anniversary coming up next episode. We will T-shirt giveaway coming up for sure. Um, thank you for gifts. Matt Dwarman works at Paramount Pictures. He sent me a letter and he said, I hope this package gets to you safely. I'm a fan of the podcast. A good portion of the time, I agree with your opinion. Matt, good portion of the time. Come on, all the time. I'm also pleased you're one of the people that enjoy the film Silence almost as much as I do. This coming from someone who is just a fan of the film, I was happy that you expressed how much you enjoyed the film. He then says something I can't repeat, but he, he basically, he sent me a very nice gift. And... uh 
All I can say is it's autographed by Liam Neeson and Adam Driver. So this is very cool that uh, Matt went to that length. So thank you so much, Matt. Very generous. Uh, there will be a cinephile shirt coming to you there at Paramount Pictures out Melrose Avenue in Hollywood, California. Silence, by the way, is currently available on DVD and Blu-ray now. Check it out. Michael Jr. saw it, which I was thrilled by. He They had me on the Levitard show, and uh, he said he saw Silence. He thought it was exceptional. So you don't believe me? Believe Michael Jr. Also, thanks to Shane, Shane Garibrandt, who is from Watertown, New York, who writes, I'm 22 years old. I'm from Watertown, New York. From listening to your Vigo Mortensen interview, I know you actually am aware of where Watertown is. I grew up in Kingston. Kingston and Watertown are uh, on the border there of Canada and New York State. He goes on. And by the way, it's just incredible that anybody would send me a handwritten note in this day and age. I, I applaud that action. Is he in prison? <laughs> well, I was worried he was going to expect a handwritten note back, which I wouldn't go to those lengths. Thankfully, he did include his email and his phone number at the end. So I had the choice of an email back, which is what I did, or I could have texted him. I clearly wasn't going to go to the length of calling him because I'm like, come on, it's 2017. But uh, thank you very much, Shane. The, the essence of what he's saying is he knows it's a two-man operation. If there's anything we need to like to help out, I don't know if we can farm out work to Watertown, New York. Uh, but Shane, you're also getting a Cinefile shirt. So thank you very much for listening. It's very much appreciated. Speaking of Hank Azaria, his guy calls my guy last week and says, hey, Hank had a phenomenal time. Of everybody at ESPN, he had the best rapport with you. He just wanted to say thank you, and he has an opportunity for you. I said, what's that? And he said, on the 24th, he wants to fly you out to Vegas. They're doing a panel for Brockmire, him, Amanda Pete, and the IFC president. And I said, wow. They go, it's the National Association of Broadcasters, referred to as the NAB. I said, all right. I'm like, what day? They go, Monday the 24th. I'm like, oh. I do baseball tonight, Mondays. I go, what? what? And they go, it's in Vegas, like 2.15 Vegas time. I'm like, with the t-. I only see what I can do. I text Ravi, Carl Ravitch, who is the, the primary host of baseball tonight, huge fan of Cinephile, big supporter. I know he's listening. Uh, and Carl, I'd covered him for a shift on April 5th, actually, the day Jessica Alba was here. So I'm like, hey, I know you don't like working the late shift, but you hooked me up. He was like, yeah, no problem, of course. Uh, so I'm going to Las Vegas, baby. Breaking news That's for you. That's huge. Going to Vegas on Monday. And now they said, listen, we're not putting you up in a hotel here. It's not It's not a Vegas vacation. We'll fly you in that morning, 6 a.m. flight, get to Vegas. Although I believe there's a room at the Bellagio that uh, his guy Adam said, you can come to Bellagio, shower up a little bit. Uh, then we're going to go. The panel's at 2.15. I don't have details how long the panel is beyond just the, the participants, which is Hank, Amanda Pete, and the IFC president. So IFC president, I'm going to be like, hey, listen, any other show? Hey, Marin, I love. <laughs> Portlandia, I'd love to meet Fred Armisen whenever you need. Let me know. So there'll be some schmoozing there. And then I take the red eye back that night. So 12 hours in Vegas, I get to hang out with Hank. Hank just wants you there to defend his Apu voice from The Simpsons, right? <laughs> he said he was going to parade you around with him for when anyone yelled at him. If anybody hasn't listened, please listen to Hank Azari's interview instead of following. That was one of the funnier lines. Because if anybody gives me any heat, I'm going to say there's this Pakistani gentleman at ESPN who seems to have carved out a good career for himself. And Dan's right. He said he'll just take me around with him whenever he gets any heat. So thanks to Hank. I'll have stories from Vegas next time I'm going to Very, very cool stuff there. And thank you to all those who listened to the Jessica Alba interview. Uh, she was delightful. I went back and listened to it. I thought it was fine. Um, I don't think there's anything that we missed. I thought she gave me a bunch of courtesy laughs. She was sincere. Um, gave a lot of free stuff. Shaz De Niro's wearing a uh, Cardinals diaper today, so that was great. So uh, thank you to Jessica Alba and her handlers. Dan, what was the reaction? Uh, Jim Stanzik or your buddies, anybody that listened to Jessica? 
I don't think there was much. I did see someone in the hallway recently. Joe Iliano, a director, said he's a big fan of Cinephile. And I said, no way. That's great. Had yes. no idea. Oh, I love he's, Joe. He said he started listening after the Oscars because that's kind of when things took off and you announced the call and it was such a big deal. And he right. goes, I love it. I'm all in now. Oh, Joe's fantastic. He's one of the best directors here. He's a great guy. So if Joe's all in, that's very good news. He better listen to this one. If he doesn't, because if he just said that to you and then he does not send me a text after listening to this, Joe, you're on the clock. Also, Dan, remember I gave you a Scorsese DVD like six months ago? I believe I still have it at my desk. All right, so here's what we're going to do. At the end of this podcast, I'll give you some time. We'll have a trivia question about Marty. So I guess you'll have to wait till the Scorsese story. Let's do that. And then Dan will have a trivia question. The first one to get it right will get this Scorsese DVD. It's a personal journey uh, through American movies. It's outstanding. I mean, it's like going to film school with Marty, four hours of all these classic films that he adores in American movies. There's also one called Il Mio Viaggio di Italia, which is all the, the movies he loves in Italy, of course. Uh, but that's a separate issue for another day. So your chance to win something free coming up later on The Cinephile. And also coming up in terms of guests, Ben Mankiewicz of TCM, Turner Classic Movies. I love old movies, and I cannot wait to talk to Ben. We're going to have a blast and talk about some of his favorite movies and his journey to getting here. Actor Showcase, I think we, we lean very heavily with the males, so we'll mix it up with females and give Kate Winslet her due today. Her top five films, three words as well, the Mark Simon special. And in honor of one of Marty's great collaborators who passed away, we'll reflect on cinematographer Michael Bauhaus and his contribution to cinema. I normally start the podcast with... Um, a blurb from a review. I didn't do it this time because I'm not reviewing this movie this time, but we mentioned Why Him last time, which is the Brian Cranston, James Franco film, which I did not give a good review. So I did want to read Mick LaSalle's review. Mick's a, a terrific critic. I've been doing it for a lot of years. San Francisco Chronicle. Pedro Gomez is a big fan. Why Him takes a comic situation and then does everything it can to undermine it. It's more than unfunny. It's anti-funny. It doesn't provoke laughter or even neutral silence, but an increasingly stunned disdain. It is the movie equivalent of putting on a plaster life mask and letting it dry and lock your face into an expression of blank misery. <laughs> I think it was the specific high-tech toilet scene, moose urine, that really got him upset. I mentioned that to a Cranston stuck on the toilet. That's when he knew this movie was in the crapper. Also, Todd McCarthy, The Hollywood Reporter. Thanks to my buddy Puffy. Everybody mentioned Jess Gobble last time, but I thought Walter Hill was great. And my friend Puffy said, no, I thought he had a great interview with him, and he seemed really into what you were asking him. And uh, his movie is out right now. And speaking of that, McCarthy of, of The Hollywood Reporter, who's also a very good critic, wrote, For longtime fans of the filmmaker, this Canadian-made low-budget revenge journal will be embraced as Hill's most entertaining and on the terms it sets for itself, a compass film in some time. It's an instant cult item. That film is called The Assignment. It stars Michelle Rodriguez, Sigourney Weaver. It's currently on demand and in select theaters. When's the last time you saw Train Spotting, Dan? Can't say I ever have. Oh, never to see it come on. Sorry. Oh, yeah. okay. All right. Well, I hadn't seen Train Spotting a long time. Excited to see Train Spotting 2. My cousin thankfully said, well, why don't we watch the first one again? Because I hadn't seen it in 20 years. And all I remember is how much I love the opening, one of my favorite openings, just that, that whole, I mean, literally it hits the ground running. Ewan McGregor and his Scottish hooligans running around and that great soundtrack, Lust for Life. Uh, by Iggy Pop is the headliner, but there's actually lots of great songs on that soundtrack from start to finish. So it was good to watch it again because now we remember what actually happens to these characters. I mean, we would have been lost now watching the sequel without a nice reminder. So tough task Danny Boyle sets for himself. How do you make a movie 20 years later about a bunch of heroin addicts? Because clearly they can't all still be on heroin because not sure that's that realistic. You'd be able to keep up that lifestyle. Maybe there's a couple outliers out there. If you are, tweet us at Cinephile. 
But for most people, you're going to eventually have to clean this up. And if you'll recall, the first one, Dan hasn't seen it. And spoiler alert, if anybody hasn't, it came out in 96. I think it's been enough time. Ewan McGregor rips off his buddies at the end. He takes the money. In the last shot, you just see him walking. So I was like, all right, well, how are they going to pick this up? How's he going to reunite with his buddies? So he goes back uh, to Scotland. And now Scotland has changed. And they kind of touch on the fact it's become more gentrified. It's a different country. And Begbie, who is the best character, he's the most entertaining. That's Robert Carlyle, who you see on the show Once Upon a Time. He's the real psychotic. And the first thing that was refreshing about the sequel was the first one I found tough to decipher all the accents. I remember watching it um, when it originally came out. You need subtitles for this thing. I mean, it's such a, a tough Scottish accent. This time, I swear, they made the accent easier because while watching the first one again, I, I definitely needed subtitles in the DVD. But in the theater watching Trainspotting 2, I was not that lost. And that may sound like a, a silly criticism, but I don't think it is. I mean, if you can't understand what the guys are saying, clearly your enjoyment is going to be nullified. So I don't know if Danny Boyle made it easier. I think he did. The accents to me are not as intense. So that's reason one you should watch the movie. Like I mentioned, Carlisle is great. He plays Begbie, who's a psychotic. Drugs are not what turns him on. Violence is. He loves just getting into scraps and fights, and that's what he's all about. And the rest of the characters have returned as well. Now, with the first one, what made Trainspotting so great was it was so exhilarating. You take a story about heroin addicts adapted from a book, and it's just so much fun. You know, the fact that these guys are a bunch of hooligans and stealing and cheating and lying and doing drugs. I mean, that's amorality has long been something that is obviously a ton of fun to watch on the silver screen. So you put a movie like that with the energy of Danny Boyle, who's a terrific director, who's very stylish, and you put that up there on screen, it sounds irresistible. Now, it's not irresponsible, because while the first half of the movie is a ton of fun, it's also a very sick, grimy movie. And once he starts hallucinating and Ewan McGregor has to kick the heroin, even if you haven't seen the movie, people know there's a scene with the baby. Uh, There's a scene where it's the most disgusting toilet in Scotland. And then the heroine's in there, and he's got to dive into the toilet. And, yes, everything you can imagine, it's a filthy, filthy scene. So they they wallow in the squalor quite a bit, along with all the exhilaration. Now, the second film, you're not going to be able to hit the ground running like that because now we know the original story. And like I said, they can't keep up that lifestyle. So by nature, a film about heroin addicts 20 years later is going to be much more contemplative. And contemplative is not an emotion that's as exciting to watch on screen. And I think for people who watch the first train spot, they're like, yeah, let's go. Get back to the drugs and rock and roll and soccer and so on and so forth. They're going to go, oh, these guys are moody now. And they have wives and kids and girlfriends and reflections and regrets and remembrances. And while that can add resonance to a film, it does make it less appealing, I think, particularly for that demographic. Having said that, I preferred... Uh, what Danny Boyle was trying to do here. I don't think he could have kept up that pace. I mean, that would just be nihilism is a lot more entertaining, but it's a lot more unrealistic. And listen, I I don't want to make this sound like it's just a serious story about navel gazing. I mean, there is plenty of that, but there is still some exhilarating moments. There is some fights, there is some car chases, and there are still some characters taking drugs and heroin, and they do have enough flashbacks to the original film that you still have that energy. And Boyle's a good enough director. I mean, listen, he took Steve Jobs, which is like a 300-page Aaron Sorkin script, and somehow made it visual, which is incredibly difficult. Like, it's just people talking in boardrooms backstage, and yet Boyle, because of his visual sense, and because Sorkin has such a gift for dialogue, and because Fassbender is such a good actor, you know, between those three elements, they made Steve Jobs very good. So even if Boyle has more of a static script, he can make it entertaining. But I just – I use that as a preface for those who are expecting the same film. It is not the same film, but that doesn't mean it's still not very good. I enjoyed it because of the style, because the characters are so entertaining, because of the chances that the filmmaker takes. 
Uh, the soundtrack, as I mentioned, was one of the best parts of the first one. It is a little bit notable that the best song in the sequel is still the first song, which is Lust for Life. The whole time I'm waiting, I'm like, all right, when are they going to play Lust for Life, Iggy Pop? When are they going to start running around and getting on heroin? Thankfully, it does come at some point, and then I can listen to Lust for Life the rest of the time, uh, which is part of a broader conversation, Dan, which I will throw to you now. When you think of songs and movies, like to me, Lust for Life, Train Spotting, any I just hear the bump, bump, bump right away. I'm like, yeah, hooligans, drugs. Running down the street. I heard you were singing it on Rosillo and Canal the other day. I did, yeah. So, in a terrible accent. That's not true. I thought it was pretty uh, faithful. So when you think of a movie, you think of a song. And I, I don't want to mistake this now because people are saying, well, hang on. What about the Titanic soundtrack? Well, I, I guess you could say the Celine Dion song. But we're not looking at musical scores. This is not a conversation about John Williams versus Ennio Morricone. And this is not, you know, from track one to track 16 best soundtracks because American Graffiti one of the heavyweight champions when it comes to great pop music. I'm just looking at one pop song that you think of the movie. What would that be? Okay, I have a few notable ones to mention first that aren't exactly what I thought of, but to get people understanding what we're going for here. Yeah. We're talking like Bohemian Rhapsody in yeah, Wayne's Yeah, that's a great one. Yeah. Or uh, Old Time Rock and Roll by Bob Seger in Risky Business. Right. Cruise. And another big one that I'm surprised you didn't lead with would be like Layla and Goodfellas. Yes, great one. Okay. So the, the, what yeah. I thought of that's first. That's the template is a movie you hate. Forrest but Gump. I thought of Fortunate Son by Clint's Clearwater Revival in Forrest Gump. Yeah, I don't remember it well enough. I don't know it's when, when he was it. on the, the chopper going to Vietnam. Oh, okay. Uh, and it's uh, like uh, the beginning, yeah. Uh, okay. So uh, I thought uh, of that first. And then I've seen the movie The Sandlot and Dumb and Dumber probably more than any other movie ever. <laughs> and so I thought of Tequila in The Sandlot. Okay. So if I hear you. that song, I would think of The Sandlot. All right. I Got You, Babe, Groundhog Day, Sonny and Cher, I think of every That's time. That's a very good one, yes. Be My Baby, of course, The Ronettes, Mean Streets, although I know some people identify that with Dirty Dancing, but I would think of uh, I've Had the Time of My Life. Lust for Life, Transpotting, Power of Love, Back to the Future, Huey Lewis. Yep. And here's two of them that I think are heavyweight champions. Unchained Melody, Ghost. I think of the pottery scene right away. I hate that movie. Fair enough. I would be yeah. over won an Oscar, which is troubling. Yeah. But I think that's like, and here's probably the best one. So for the record, you have two Patrick Swayze movies. Yeah, and this okay. is this is probably the worst one. But I think of it every single time in terms of identification of a great pop song in the movie. And I love the song, but I don't care for the movie. I mean, I liked it when I was eight. I don't think it would hold up now. You've lost that love and feeling, Top Gun. Oh, of course. Yeah. What's that's, it in the jukebox? That's an obvious one. That's a great one. Yeah. I do have one more, and I've referenced it before, but Comfortably Numb by Pink Floyd oh, yeah, and you The Departed. <laughs> I love that one. You, you can also do Shipping Up to Boston by the Dropkick Murphys great one. Yeah. In, in The Departed as well. Yeah, I almost find that one. I mean, that you're right, but I like it when it's like a, just a famous song, but that's more identified the movie. Like Dropkick Murphys, I wouldn't know unless it was The Departed. Whereas Sunny right, Share, right. I Got You, Bev, I would hear it, and then I'm like, oh, but now I always think of Groundhog Day specifically. I'm sure there are others, so if people want to tweet them at us, please Tweet do. them at us, at Cinephile, and let us know. Overall, I'm giving Train Spotting two, three Maple Leafs. I enjoyed it, especially if you like the original movie. Don't expect the same movie, but it is a good companion piece. Tons of style from Danny Boyle, the director, and good performances by the entire cast, which is all reunited. Robert Kyle, particularly, is Begbie, is great. Ewan McGregor, very good, reprising his original role. By the way, Ewan McGregor looks unrecognizable. He's coming out Fargo Season 3, which is coming soon. Uh, honestly, go Google Ewan McGregor Fargo Season 3. I cannot wait. Because I think he's a really good actor, and then Obi-Wan just ruined him. My cousin Zahid was saying that to me. He goes, remember, like, he did, like, a shallow grave and train spotting, and he was a really good up and coming actor. He goes, they did Obi Wan. Like, when's the last time you and McGregor made a great movie? It's been like 10 years since the last time you're like, hey, you and McGregor made a solid movie. So, looking forward to Fargo season three, and that's train spotting two. 
One of our favorite actors as well is Michael Keaton. His new film, The Founder, came out earlier this year. It was kind of buried in January. Thought to be a big Oscar contender. Originally, it was going to come out in the summer. Couldn't wait to watch it in July and August. Then they pushed it, the Weinstein Company, I think for awards consideration. However, then it didn't get anything. It wasn't getting any buzz uh, from the Golden Globes or um, any of the previous voting bodies, New York film critics or the L.A. film critics or Boston or Chicago. So they buried it. Basically, it was available for awards consideration if there was a chance to get a nomination. But really, the only chance is going to be Keaton because the movie wasn't getting much buzz. He's supposed to be very good. He did not get a nomination. It came out in January along with another film, Matthew McConaughey's Gold, where, again, the, the actor was being pushed. But the movie apparently was a disappointment. And even if you ask anybody who watched Gold, it's in McConaughey. wasn't even very good in that movie either. So that was a real bomb all around. But the founder, I said, well, I still want to watch it for Keaton, even though it didn't get um, perhaps a recognition that it was hoping for. And I thought it was all right. I mean, the best reason to watch it is Michael Keaton. He plays Ray Kroc, who is the guy who is commonly known as the one who invented McDonald's. But if you know the real story, you know that uh, he's just a schemer and a scoundrel. And he basically stole the idea from the McDonald's brothers and co-opted it into his own. And like I said, Keaton's the best part of the movie because he always has, you know, Michael Keaton has a singular ability. He always has a ton of energy. Every one of his movies, he has a real kind of wild energy. It's either, either it's a manic energy, like when Batman's like, you want to get nuts? Come on, let's get nuts. Or it's just kind of sitting there, but it's always present. And in a movie like this, you know, a movie like The Paper, which is not a great movie, Jamel Hill's favorite movie. Like, it's not a great movie, but Keaton's fantastic in it because he has that energy. And all the scenes with him and Duvall and uh, Glenn Close and all the rest of them, uh, he, he ends up elevating the source material. And here as well, playing this businessman, an entrepreneur who has never had much success, he has that restless energy, that ambition, that persistence to try to find the job. So Ray Kroc, when the movie picks it up, he's a milkshake salesman. Nothing's really happened all that great for him. He goes to a McDonald's. Now, I didn't know many of these origins. I worked for McDonald's two and a half years. They did not teach us this in the training video. Ray Kroc goes there. McDonald's brothers are running it. This is the best burger I've ever had. He ends up taking the guys out for dinner. They tell them the story. Now, I would have liked more about this. Like, like what is in the secret sauce? How did you come up with the Big Mac? But they don't go much into detail there. Their whole thought process, though, is this. This was the key with our with our McDonald's. And this one restaurant, it's just speed. You go to the front, it's 30 seconds. And they said at first people were confused. Like, you know, back in the day, they'd have waitresses, you know, coming to your car like a drive through style. And it's like, no, no, now you park your car, you get out, you take it, you put it in paper, you throw out the paper afterwards, you eat the burger, you're done. So the whole concept of fast food was quite foreign at that time. Um, but they ended up having a really successful business. So Crocs says, all right, I'll go into business with you guys. I'm going to sell this off. So they make a deal, and then he ends up getting all these franchisees. And he's, it's fairly, fairly successful. But then the bank is saying, listen, you know, he, he has to put his house up. He doesn't tell his wife, Laura Dern, rather thankless role as the uh, long-suffering wife. doesn't tell his wife he puts the house up. He's really having financial troubles. And the problem is the deal is not very good. He goes, all I get is 1.4%. The brothers themselves only get 0.5%. I'd love to see who's getting the rest of these. But basically – the way Croc looks at it is the franchisees are getting all the money and all the profits because business is not booming, but it looks pretty good. All these restaurants are in Illinois, in the Midwest. He's like, well, how come I'm not reaping the benefits? So he meets BJ Novak, who's a guy who oversees him talking to the banker because they're going to foreclose. He's going to lose the house, going to lose everything. He has a very lifeless marriage with Laura Dern. Like when she finds out that he's basically put the house up, it's just, it's just cold, you know? So BJ Novak says to him, listen, I overheard your conversation. You know, I, I think I figured out how to do this. And he's like, well, yeah, what do you want? Get away from me. And he's like, I'm a big fan of your product, Mr. Kroc. Here's how you're going to do it. What you need to do is you need to sell the land. He's like, you need to sell the land, and then the franchisees get the restaurant, and that's how you're going to make profits from this. He's like, if you're just – you can't increase your profit margin because the McDonald's brothers are not going to rework the deal. But if you buy the land, 
Then all of a sudden they put the McDonald's on there, and then it's almost like you're loaning out the McDonald's franchise. And the franchisee is then paying you rent, so to speak, and, and that's how you're going to make a killing off this thing. And so, you know, this comes about late in the movie that all of a sudden now, boom, he realizes the key to this is land acquisition. He'll be a real estate mogul, and then the McDonald's, whatever money they're generating, it's fine because they're going to be a hot property because the fact he owns the land. So the movie essentially just becomes a, a power of wills between him and uh, Nick Offerman and John Carroll Lynch were the two brothers. And basically he's just saying, listen, uh, milkshakes, we can do a more affordable way. They have this instant milkshake. You put it in a cup, you put some water in it, boom, tastes like a vanilla milkshake. It'll be a lot cheaper. Refrigeration is so expensive. Costs us $100 a year. And they're like, no, we're McDonald's. We're McDonald's brothers. We have the contract. See ya. And that's uh, essentially what the movie is. It's just a lot of these conversations back and forth. And, I mean, it should sound more thrilling. You know, this is good versus evil. Keaton's character clearly is the evil one. He's the schemer. He's the one who's, um, at one point, Offerman says in the line that's way too on the nose, but he says there's a wolf in the hen house. You know, like, this guy's got to be stopped. But he's relentless. He needs to be done. Like, Keaton, for better for better use of a term, is a jerk. He is a ruthless businessman who wants money, wants profit, doesn't have enough money, and he eventually decides by buying this land, which isn't illegal, but you can't do that, but McDonald's brothers will come on, sue me. Like, take your best shot. You guys don't have any money. You're just a bunch of – you guys, he calls me because you're a couple of country yokels. You guys are out there in the Midwest. You're not going to hire a bunch of lawyers and sue me because I'm breaching the contract. I'm not breaching the contract. I'm just going around the contract. Uh, He now creates McDonald's Realty Corporation. Like, what's that? Isn't that our company? He's like, no, it's separate. That's just the real estate. McDonald's Realty Corporation, you guys are McDonald's. So basically, he's playing hard and fast with the rules. One of the brothers has a huge health problem. So essentially, Keaton has won. And he's basically, I'll buy you guys out and I'll take over from there. And you know it from a mile away when he says, because he says, well, what's the deal going to be? And the one brother says, spoiler, by the way, if you haven't seen the movie, I'm giving away a lot now. The spoiler, he goes, how much do you want? He goes, give us $2.7 because that way it's a million dollars to each of us. He says, I can do that. And then they say, and we want royalties. We want like 1% per year. And they have the meeting with the lawyers. And one of the brothers, like I said, is failing health at this point. And Keaton goes, listen, I can't. And he, and he gives a real flimsy reason why he can't put that part in the contract. But just says, listen, handshake. And you know a mile away. He's like, handshake deal. Like, I'll get you the royalties. Like, there's no chance this guy's going to do that. And the best scene in the movie is Offerman then sees him in the bathroom afterwards. They shake on the deal. And he just goes, like, why Like, why did you do this? Like, why didn't when you When we first took you to dinner and we told you our plan, this business model of the fact that it's every 30 seconds and that's the key to Why didn't you just steal it? And he's like, you want to know why? And he's like, yeah, this, this is the best thing in the movie. He's like, yeah, why didn't you just steal the plan and just make your own McDonald's? He goes, because of the name. He goes, that's the number one reason why your thing succeeds. He's like, what? He goes, McDonald's. He goes, my name Croc. He goes, yeah, Slavic name, Crocs, Croc. What a Croc. He goes, that's not going to work. He goes, but McDonald's? He goes, McDonald's sounds wholesome. It sounds strong. It sounds American. He goes, McDonald's is reliable. McDonald's you can trust. And he goes, so I couldn't just steal the idea from you because McDonald's is the name and that's your guy's name. So I just got into business with you. Eventually I swindled you and he amassed a gigantic fortune. The end credits, by the way, and please speak of music, can we just stop playing Spirit in the Sky? It's a great song, but they've used it in Suicide Squad. They've used it in countless movies. No more Spirit in the Sky. I'm asking that in terms of music for all the studios listening. But at the end, they explain all the, and of course, he does not give a dime to any of these guys. And the ending credits saying that the brothers should have reaped, the brothers should have reaped a hundred million dollars each a year 
in the royalties, which, of course, Croc said, well, that's never true. He didn't prove it. I'm like, yeah, $100 million each. Those brothers got bilked out of. Think of how many years it's been. I guess it was created in the in 54 was the first McDonald's. The story takes place in the 60s, late 70s, like the fortunes upon fortunes. These brothers were completely screwed out of. Um, and Ray Croc doesn't care because he's like, hey. I win. <laughs> That's the way it's going to be. So the story sounds interesting. Robert Siegel's script is fine. It has all the elements. So why is the movie overall pedestrian and uninspiring? And for that, I blame the director, John Lee Hancock, because he shoots it in a very straightforward, bland style. And if you look at his filmography, you shouldn't be surprised. This is the guy who's made Saving Mr. Banks, The Blind Side, and The Alamo. Perfectly disposable films, which... Probably make a profit. Certainly, the blind said huge money. Saving Mr. Banks, good money. He gets stars. Of course, Tom Hanks, Emma Thompson, Sandra Bullock. The Alamo had our boy Billy Bob Thornton, Jason Patrick. But his movies are completely vapid. Like, I just kept thinking, if you had a director like David Fincher who made The Social Network, which is, again, a film about ambition and avarice and greed and the formation of technology, I'm like, this would have been a compelling story. If you had Fincher directing this, I'm like, this thing would have sung. Instead, you have Hancock, who's just perfectly content to let his camera sit there. He tells a story rather flat tones. The lighting's unimpressive. There's really nothing notable about it. He just lets the story unfold. And afterwards, you go, okay, Ray Kroc was a real jerk. Keaton gave a great performance. It's perfectly disposable, forgettable like a McDonald's hamburger. So ultimately, pedestrian uninspiring, which is why I'm giving the founder two Maple Leafs. I'm not surprised the film did not do better. I think there's a great film about McDonald's to be made. I think there should be a 10-hour documentary. There should, Ezra Edelman should make like a documentary about McDonald's the way he did about OJ. Like, how do you make the secret sauce? How, like, how did this become a juggernaut? It is amazing to me. Like, the origins of it. Just one restaurant in Illinois. They started building up Illinois suburbs. Now they said the profits of McDonald's, it feeds 1% of the world's population every day. And you're all right, 1%. You go, no, but there's 6 billion people. Like, one restaurant. It's staggering. Dan just probably does not eat. As a marathon runner, probably hasn't eaten McDonald's in about five years. I stay away, yeah. yeah. How's my guy Nick Offerman, though? Offerman's The cast right. sounds great. It sounds like a great team with a terrible coach. Yeah. How that, was Offerman? That's a, Offerman was good. His, now his if people don't remember Offerman, he was Ron Swanson in Parks and Rec. <laughs> yeah. Probably the greatest character in television history. <laughs> I'll take your word for it. I haven't seen the show. I, I love his season. Sorry. So he's good in the way, but again, his character does not have a lot of dimension. He's just rigid, crew-cut, Midwest. This is my With idea. the mustache? Uh, without the mustache. Oh, it's not worth it. I know. With the mustache, right, pass on the movie. He has the glasses. But yeah, it's like, no, Ray, this is the deal we signed. Point five. It's our business. That's it. It's a lot of scenes of Nick Offerman doing that over and No, Ray, do you not understand? This is the deal you signed. You can't do this to our customers. We are McDonald's. I'm like, okay, got it. No, cut to another scene. All right, how about the milkshake? Again, Keaton's persistent. No, Ray, we can't. You have to have milk in a milkshake. I'm like, all right, got it. So that is the founder. Two Maple Leafs. Joining us now, a real thrill to welcome in Ben Mankwitz of TCM. He is a fellow cinephile, and I'm so thrilled that he's joining us today. Thanks for the time, Ben. Uh, I'm happy to do it. Uh, you know, it's a combination of uh, movies and sports. It, it doesn't get better than that. <laughs> yeah, when we, we started following each other recently on Twitter, and then I sent you DMs. I'm such a fan of your work. And as you said to me, we're probably oddly jealous of each other's work because the only thing you're as passionate about with movies is baseball, right? Yeah, baseball, and I, I suppose I should count politics too. But I, I, I spent as I when I sort of realized I'd probably end up being a broadcaster, at least trying to. I mean, I, I thought I'd be a play-by-play broadcaster. That was that was what I imagined doing. That's just how I saw my life going. And uh, uh, and then I had a 
uh, weird and in hindsight, uh, dumb epiphany uh, in my <laughs> mid twenties. Like I, I, you know, I realized that, that it didn't, you know, I was in local news and I did sports sometimes. And I, I was sort of recognizing that if you got a score wrong, you know, if you were like, in the, if, you, if, you, if you're doing the 11 o'clock news and you were like, and the Padres beat the Giants 4-2, and then you realize the Giants beat the Padres 4-2, it doesn't matter. Like, it didn't affect anything. And I thought, this is not a serious way to make your mark in life. And so I was like, I can't do it. I'll just be a fan. And I sort of stopped all efforts to continue in that regard. And, you know, and then uh, whatever, 18 months later, I was like, well, what was I thinking? Well, first of all, I, cr- I crave the ability to be wrong about something and have it not matter. Like, wouldn't that be, you know, uh, anyway, it was just, you know, you make dumb decisions when listen, you're young. And, ben, and that, I, was, I, listen, that was one of them. No, I think it's all worked out for you. And by the way, there's still time. I can always call up a Class A affiliate. We'll get you out there behind the mic. We got Hank Azari with Brock Meyer. Look at what he's been able to do, right? That's right. That's right. No, I see that. I say, and, I, and, and I saw he threw out the first pitch uh, uh, last night. And I um, Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah, I don't know where he was. I think he was at oh uh, the match game. That's match yeah, game. That's right. I was going to say Shea. I don't even. I, I literally. I now no longer know what ballpark's name is. <laughs> and uh, but uh, uh, City Field, I think it's called. That's right. But City he, um, uh, yeah, and I thought, yeah, man, it's just, and he's got that. What a great thing to pretend to be. Anyway, I just, it just there. I, I romanticized it, and uh, I still like. I'm a huge Oakland A's fan. Uh, but when there's a, I mean, it has been a big game in a couple of years. But when I'd rather. <laughs> Uh, like frequently I'll be watching the game and I think, nah, I'm going to go, for, especially living in Southern California. I'm like, I'm going to go for a drive. I'm going to listen on the radio. It's just, it just works better on yeah. the radio. Hey, Kendall Graveman, there's reason for hope. Okay. Yeah. Um, we, we, we like Kendall Graveman. Yeah. It, oh, I, that's right. And you care about Kendall Graveman because you're, uh, uh you're from another land. <laughs> um, <laughs> North of the border. Yeah, and uh, that's right. We like all those guys who came for Toronto. That trade is not going to turn out to be as disastrous a trade for the A's. The Donaldson trade is is bad, but it's not going to be disastrous. Cause... <laughs> Pretty bad, but you're right. But keep, Maybe... Just real quick, just keep in mind. I know you want to talk movies, but keep in mind, like if we'd kept Donaldson, <laughs> we still would have finished last the last two years. It's not like that suddenly makes that a playoff well, game. Yeah, that so, is a good point. But but look, at it, it felt like Donaldson got traded like 30 cents in the dollar, Ben. This guy's yes, a stud, right? Is that you probably could have gotten more. But between Graveman and Barreto, the Barreto, the, yeah. the, the kid, like that, it will be all right. It's I, bad, I, but it's not disaster. I, I love that we have gone down this rabbit hole. Like people are thinking <laughs> TCM, we're going to wax poetic about on the waterfront. Like, no, Graveman no. deal. <laughs> I, I know you just turned 50. Happy birthday. I hope it was a wonderful occasion. I normally wouldn't ask such a loaded question, but I feel like when you hit a milestone birthday, perhaps you're already in a reflective and contemplative tone. So how did you get to this place in life? How did you get to being the face of Turner Classic Movies? I know there's a great long lineage, and for those that don't know, please tell us with screenwriters and, and in your family. But seriously, how did this become your life? Well, uh, the, uh, uh, you know, Branch Rickey, who signed Jackie Robinson to relate it to baseball once again, said luck is the residue of design, except it leaves out that there's definitely a lot of luck at play. Um, I, uh, yeah, my, my grandfather, Herman Mankiewicz, was a screenwriter. He wrote uh, Citizen Kane, which is a pretty good movie. Um, he also wrote Pride of the Yankees, the Lou Gehrig story, um, among others. His, his younger brother, my great uncle, Joe Mankiewicz, was, was even more successful. He has four Oscars, uh, winning twice back-to-back years for writing and directing. It's, I think, impossible to imagine that happening again uh, for uh, Letter to Three Wives and All About Eve. Um, 
in 49 and 50, uh, and, you know, also directed Cleopatra Sleuth and, uh, you know, uh, uh, sort of gave Sidney Poitier his start in a, in a film he directed called uh, No Way Out in 1950 with Richard Woodmark. Uh, my cousin Tom Mankiewicz, Joe's son, wrote three James Bond movies, wrote Superman 1 and 2, created Heart to Heart on television. That's where he made his money. He dated all three original angels, which is really, I'm burying the lead. Um, and uh, uh, and then my father, Frank, uh, and a bunch of other screenwriters in the family. My cousin John Mankiewicz is a writer for a long time on uh, House of Cards, uh, now writing for Bosch on Amazon. My father, Frank, was a, moved to politics and uh, didn't care for movies or Hollywood and moved the family to D.C., which is where I was raised. He was Bobby Kennedy's press secretary and ran George McGovern's campaign, president of National Public Radio. Latin American director of the Peace Corps and fought the Nazis. Um, uh, so my dad, in case you can't tell, a bit of a hero to me. Um, and uh, so I grew up in D.C., vaguely unaware of the movie history of my family. Not unaware, unaware of its significance. Let me put it that way. And because uh, my dad was such a big deal in, in, in D.C. And then I, I started, you know, I got into television and, and I was on a great show in Miami that no one watched, but we did local news in a way that uh, was just inventive and interesting. It was owned by Barry Diller. We had to be, we had to have a point of view in these news stories. And it could be left wing, right wing, or or in the middle, but you had to defend it no matter what. We didn't cover fires or murders, and, and as I said, no, no one ever watched, but we were quite good. Um, and uh, and by the time it went under, <laughs> as all good things must, uh, I, I moved out to L.A. and I started auditioning for every job there was. I mean, I, I the, there was a there was a boat version of Blind Date, where people would meet on cruise ships and go on dates. So it was like Blind Date, except somehow worse. Um, and I almost got that job. Uh, mercifully, uh, I didn't. Uh, and then TCM, I auditioned for TCM and the manner in which they had the audition set up helped me. Initially, it wasn't just going to be reading the, the story, uh, an intro to the movie and a little tag at the end of the movie, the way Robert Osborne does. It was going to be a conversation. And that's what I'm better at. And at least and certainly then I was better at. And so I had this audition where I was involved in talking to people about movies, and I did well, and they called me back, and and I, you know, and I got the I got the job, and I, I, you know, again, if they hadn't had me audition in this particular way, I don't think that I would have gotten it. But the way, and then that way was shelved because it was too hard to do. So by the time I got the job, it was just a standard. It was what you see now, what you saw Robert Osborne do at TCM for years. Um, but again, that's the luck part is that they sort of allowed me to flourish in the audition in a way that they then abandoned. So I had to call that luck. Well, I, I, you're being humble, and I appreciate because I know you're being sincere. But I will say, and you know this in broadcasting, sometimes what can be easy is rather deceptive. Meaning someone goes, oh, okay, you just do the intro to the film, and you knock it a couple minutes, you put it in prompter, away we go. But I think that's incredibly difficult because you have less of a landscape with which to paint. You've got a couple of uh, colors, and you've got to make this clear and, and straightforward, and yet you're able to really make it sing. And as I had messaged you, I adore Robert Mitchum. I watched Night of the Hunter again, and your intro was great. You said, you will not be rooting for Mitchum in Night of the Hunter. When he played bad guys, he was diabolically sinister. Like, you yeah. must work over every single word to make it perfect. Um I mean, Mitchum, that's a great line, a great way of characterizing him in that film, playing the evil preacher, for those who haven't seen him. Yeah, we just, uh, you know, I just introed it again. We just did another, we're, you know, we're airing it again. And uh, this one was more focused on Charles Lawton. This was the only movie Charles Lawton directed. We have we have a bunch of writers, and it's just what Robert had. We They send me the scripts, and then I work 
over the scripts. Like we just finished our festival, April 6th to 9th. It was amazing and successful. It was, uh, there was a touch of sadness to it. It was the first festival after Robert Osborne died. Um, we dedicated it to him. Um, but then afterwards, uh, I, we had, I had to be here the following week and, you know, I had 95 scripts to get through in a week right after this sort of exhausting festival. I know this makes it seem like this is somehow a hard job and everybody should give me a hug because I'm like a coal miner. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, the scripts take a long time to go through. Like there are, there's a base script written, but I mean, I go through every one. I put significant changes into every one. I like to think that if there's a line that you liked that I added that, I can't guarantee that diabolically sinister wasn't in there, but that does sound like me because that is my style of throwing words together in that way, and I use a lot of adverbs. Um, but, you know, it is different. Writing for television, as you know, is different, and uh, everything has to be written like you're going to say it out loud, and then you have to manage to make it conversational, right? Like you're telling I, – I try to always – I do little weird things with the prompter, like change words on the fly so that it reminds me not to, not that I'm reading a prompter, but that I'm telling a story. Just little things that, you know, trigger me to try and do this in a way that and, – and, and, I, and I appreciate your compliment because it, it is – harder is a weird word, but it is more challenging because we bring some great, great, great actors down here to do it, right? Really mm-hmm. talented, Oscar-winning actors, and they can't do it, you know, and, and it's there, so it's a thing. Uh, and you know it's a weird thing to be good at, but I'm I'm pleased that I'm good at it. So well, thanks. no, you do a great job at it, and I love. I mean, this, this is a great time, particularly for those to indulge in TCM, because I find, you know, the summer movies people are going to get into, and they're they're fun popcorn pictures, and certainly people have tastes like mine, like all the Oscar bait, which comes out in the fall. But this is a great time, Ben, because normally the movies, let's be honest, are quite lousy at the cinema. So I'm like, I'm just going to dive in on TCM. Once the Oscars are over, you guys had a great playoff of March Madness for college basketball fans with March Mayhem, and you've got all these bad guys and sinisters. Like, uh, to me, I'm like, how could you not gorge on Bogart, Cagney, and Mitchum? Like, that's that's pivotal thinking by you guys. Smart. Yeah, well, thanks. So we, you know, we tried it. The, the head of program is a guy named Charlie Tavish, and he is a, he is a, you know, he doesn't live, he doesn't even close to, he's not in a vacuum. He is aware of the world. He's politically active and aware and, and a big sports fan too, huge sports fan. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, what's happening in the world, we try to, as best we can, uh, relate it. You know, as always, we're doing, uh, I just finished taping a bunch of uh uh, you know, coming up over Memorial Day weekend, we always do a, a war movie salute. They arranged it by theme, different kinds of war movies this year. Um, yeah, we tried, of course, as I'm sure you figured out, to call it March Madness, but you cannot call anything March Madness. <laughs> They're so very we, sensitive on yeah, that, right? Yeah, we had to call it March Mayhem. And, and like Turner owns the rights, so we thought maybe we'd get a break, but nope, nope, no break, no break for friends. <laughs> so it became March Mayhem. We did a deep dive recently, Ben, because they had the new uh, book about Casablanca, which just came out. So we read that and we discussed in the podcast. And my producer. That's yeah, a good Dan, book. I read that. Yeah, very yeah. good. And um, our producer, Dan, was making the point, and I'm sure you fight this as well. Like, there's guys like you and me who just love old movies and then you'll meet these just nimrods who go wow i'm sure it's good but i just don't like black and white movies and i'm like what are you talking like get over your hang up and just watch touch of evil and you'll be appreciative to me what do you say to those who are resistant to old movies who said yeah i'm sure it's good but and i love mad max fury road but they'd say i'd rather just watch that than watch all about even fasten your seatbelts it's going to be a bumpy ride what what is the antidote to that well i mean first of all nobody says that about um Nobody says, ah, I'm, I read uh, John Grisham, so I'm not going to read uh, J.D. Salinger. <laughs> I'm not going to read Mar- – so I mean, only movies get treated with this notion that because it's old, it's somehow outdated. Um, and I think movies ought to be taught in high schools. 
uh, classic movies ought to be taught in high schools the same way that, that kids read uh, Mark Twain and, and, and J.D. Salinger and Oscar Wilde. So uh, you don't watch Mad Max Fury Road because of the color. You watch it because of the story, because that's compelling to you. Exciting things happen. You were drawn into it. These movies, I, generally, I mean, I think there's wonderful movies out now, really quality stuff being produced. There's also what we're inundated with, marketed with, is, is a tremendous amount of junk. So that seems like movies now are all junk because that's what gets advertised. That's what the billboards are, even though, as we know from if you saw Moonlight, you know that, you know, Moonlight was a sensational movie that would hold up in any era. Um, and, you know, Lion and many others from this year were really quality movies. But you watch because of the story. And these movies, because they were forced to tell stories and build characters because they couldn't rely on special effects. And, and of course, those sci-fi movies from the 50s, when they did try to rely on special effects, it was a, a catastrophe. You know, it was terrible. So, I mean, it's fun to watch now, but, but these movies had to rely on character and story. And that's why you watch movies. I mean, you want to say to them, you're not going to watch Casablanca because it's black and white? So you just you don't like good stories. That's not what you're interested in. Um, you know, there is no better movie than Casablanca. That's at the end of the day, you might like movies better at certain times, but in, if you're again, if you're forced to, to me as always, if you're forced to pick one that still, whether you've seen it two times or forty times, and I'm probably around forty, you still cry, you still you're still moved, you still pump your fist. You know, to me, Casablanca is like Bruce Springsteen. I've gone to you know whatever forty three Springsteen shows and. You know, they're different. They make you feel. And these movies make you feel a certain way that makes you feel good about yourself or closer to your parents or closer to your grandparents or closer to your childhood. Uh, you know, there's not a there's not a sentient person in the country or in Canada, to be fair, who doesn't want to feel that way. <laughs> All of North America, thank you for being inclusive. You're yeah. right. Just, just that level of selflessness, right? That heroism, the fact that you're putting something ahead of yourself. You're right. It, it is so timeless. I think especially, Ben, the old movies, the endings are so amazing. And I don't know if I'm just being nostalgic or I find them elegiac because I'm seeing them through my own prism. But two of my favorite endings I'd love you to talk about or give me some of your own favorite endings. I love the ending of White Heat because it's just so nihilistic. It's just Cagney blowing himself up with that you know iconic line, sure. made it Ma, top of the world. And I love... I love the ending of the third man. Can you can you verbalize for me why I love it so much? Is it because the fact that Carol Reed had the chutzpah to put it in that long shot? The fact that that Wells gets put away, but Joseph Cotton still can't get the girl he loves, and the way he throws the cigarette—it's yeah. so beautiful, right? Well, it's interesting, but you've picked two movies because, uh, to me, in much of classic Hollywood, endings are a problem because the production code required bad guys to get what they deserved. So people didn't get away with anything, even though we know in life frequently people get away with stuff, you know, all the time. So uh, I, I think that movies were hamstrung by many of the conditions. Uh, you know, if if people fell in love, they had to end up getting married, right? They can't just live together. That you know, it's not like people didn't live together in the nineteen thirties, forties, and fifties. Um, so, but you have picked two movies which got around that. So that's I think significant. You know, in in White Heat, yeah, he's the bad guy, so he gets what he deserves. But by the end of White Heat, we like him, right? Or we're certain we're certainly there is a degree of empathy that we feel for Cody Jarrett. Um, so there is some degree. It's not we don't when he when that blows up, uh, we don't. There's not like, ah, we got the bad guy. There, You're torn a little bit. You also think, well, this is the only fitting ending. He can't go back to prison. This is what he would have wanted. 
right? He's died in a blaze of glory. Uh, he feels connected to his dead mother, who is so weirdly close to throughout the movie, <laughs> sitting on her lap, getting a head rub um, at 40. Um, the, uh, uh, and then the third man is the same thing. Like, like it doesn't give you Wells. Again, there is he's terrible. He's but we don't I don't you're not rooting for Wells to die. And in that moment, what Carol Reed does is because Wells is so scared. Again, you have a degree of sympathy. So to take them to turn what is expected of a viewer that this black marketeer who's been engaged in behavior that has killed children, although we didn't see that. Right. But we know it's true to feel something for him because anybody being pursued in the sewers of Vienna running, you feel a degree of sympathy for. And Wells is such an underrated actor. We talk a lot about what he's capable of, but he's a really, really great actor. So you see, you first feel some sympathy for Wells so that there's a feeling, again, that you're supposed to have when somebody is shot, which to me is not, yeah, but well, I guess maybe that's how it had to go. But I don't, I don't, think anybody should be high-fiving anybody after we after they're killed i mean it's to me not to go into politics but it's why calling this the mother of all bombs will bother me to no end not right. that we shouldn't have it but it doesn't get to have a cool name right, right? It, it kills people and we, we should treat it soberly anyway so i think death is treated soberly and then you think there's going to be this moment where Cotton, who's been conflicted this entire time, and it's his friend, and he can't believe it, but he, but he's seeking the truth, and then it turns out, oh my God, my friend is not who I thought he was, and uh, and he suffered the tragedy of seeing his friend uh, one disappoint him, and then two dying. You think, well, at least he'll get the girl. Nope. She walks right past him. And that, like, yeah, man, life is hard. So full cold. of disappointments. And you're feeling this pain. And that, to me, is that. Now, of course, they, uh, you know, there were there were arguments there about how to end that movie. And I can't remember who won. I think the producer won, and Reed wanted them together. Oh, wow. Uh, so there were significant debates, and we've talked about it on the air. I'll have to oh, cool. I'll have to look it up to make sure. But I think it was Reed who thought they should they should embrace or at least give the suggestion that maybe something would happen between them. Oh. But uh, um, uh, but in the end, they went with what was clearly the right decision, uh, uh, and having her walk right past him without even looking at him, which uh, Alita Valley, which is such a great great ending to a movie. But those movies end unlike many classic films, which end, I think, sometimes a little too formulaically. That's a problem for movies. Endings of movies always, they, they were a problem in, in 1910, and it's a problem in 2017. That's why you savor the great ones, just like you. Ben Mankiewicz of TCM. I loved having you here. Hopefully we'll hook up at some point in L.A. People, follow him on Twitter at BenMank77. Ben, if at least one person is going to watch the third man after this conversation, then we've done our due diligence for all the yeah. files out there. I'll come on, talk movies, baseball, anytime you want. Thanks. After Showcase. So in the interest of trying to branch out the podcast a little bit, because I, I, we don't have demographics per se, but I just – by judging by the tweets and feedback, it's a heavily male demographics. We're trying to grow this thing, get some more women involved. So, Dan, who do we have for the Actors Showcase? We got Kate Winslet. And let the record show, I give you a female option all of the time. Whenever we do three words, 
I mean, there is at least two yeah. females all the time. But actors showcase is heavily male. I once pushed for Julia Roberts, and you almost kicked me off the podcast. That was because of a Pelican Brief. You love, love that. that movie. Oh yeah, I think Meryl Streep's the only other one we've done for actors. It is the only other female. Yeah, yes. I mean, so here we go. Kate Winslet, terrific actress, just missing the cut. Steve Jobs, she was nominated for an Oscar. I loved her performance there for supporting actress. And Iris, very good movie. Her and Judy Dench. Those ones are just missing the cut. Number five is The Reader. I read the book after watching the movie. It's a little dry, to put it mildly, but she's excellent in the movie, as she always is. Number four is Little Children, playing a suburban housewife who uh, having a torrid affair with Patrick Wilson. It's unnerving and creepy, as most films of a suburbia tend to be. Jack Earl Haley, who we all know from the Bad News Bears, unbelievable as this pedophile who's then released from prison. Just terrifying character in the scene where he has a Kate Winslet. Uh, it's a serious movie, but there is actually some... Surprisingly dark humor in there as well. Number four is Little Children. Number three is Revolutionary Road, A Marriage in Peril. It's her and Leonardo DiCaprio making sweet magic together, gorgeously shot and directed by Sam Mendes, Kate Winslet. You can just feel the icy chill of her character. That's her ex-husband too, correct? Her and Leo, no. Sam Mendes. Oh, Mendes, yes, yes. Sorry. For yes. a second, like, wait, or she was right there. Yeah. Simon's so, ex-husband, which I always thought was odd. Like when, when that started getting a lot of awards consideration, every time you see her, like just grabbing Leo and hugging him and kissing him, like Sam's right there. I think they were still married at the time. And yes. Now they're divorced. Yeah, correct. The whole time, like this isn't going to last. Like she's, she's all over Leo and Sam's right there. <laughs> and disappointed you haven't mentioned also in that film, Michael Shannon. Michael Shannon, phenomenal revolutionary road. He's not well. Number two is Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Yeah, you forgot. Kate Winslet's in that movie. Her and Jim Carrey. She's great in that. Uh, so vibrant and buoyant and bubbly and full of life. She's awesome in Eternal Sunshine, which is a great, great film. And number one, how, how are you going to go against Rose, man? Come on. Titanic. Epic film. Her and Leo, of course, made her a star. Kate Winslet. Titanic, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, Revolutionary Road, Little Children, and The Reader. So we don't have an open for book reviews since they're so sporadic, and obviously this is a movie podcast. But I read Alec Baldwin's book, nevertheless, and I think Baldwin is just a fascinating guy. I mean, of, of all the actors, I wouldn't say he's my one of my favorite actors, uh, just because I, I was looking at the list of movies that he's done, and there isn't a ton that jump out. But I love him as a person. I think he's eminently fascinating. I think he's uber-talented. And I think he would be incredible to, like, talk to and have an engaging one-hour conversation with because he's just so smart about so many different subjects. And the, the biggest overriding takeaway from reading his memoir, nevertheless, is just how generous he is, like how much he loves other actors. The index, he goes through letters of the alphabet and then just lists all of his favorite actors. So it's like, uh, you know, B is for, for Brando and for all these other actors he just starts listing, right? M is for Mitchum, you know. And he, and he goes to, like, a lot of them. Like, it's not, like, just a couple of actors. Like, I'm giving one. Okay, he'll go B is for Brando and Burton and blah, 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 blah. And, like, he's mentioning all these like, B-movie actors and actors that I think a lot of people would have forgotten. But, like, he wants to make sure that they get noticed along with the big name uh, that many others would know. Like, I can't think of any of the actors that would devote an actor's index to their own memoir. Like, it's one thing if he had said, all right, these are the people I've worked with, you know. Um, M is for Mammoth. And the fact that they Glenn Gary Glenn Ross with them. It's like, no, no, he goes through like every single actor just to try to give them love. And in fact, his whole passion for film comes about because he said that was a real close-knit relationship he had with his dad. His dad would work late. He was his teacher who then did a lot of extracurricular activities, and he would come home late, and he would just tell his mom, i got to stay up and wait for dad. 
So he'd come home and his dad inevitably would pull up the newspaper and he'd, he'd check out the listings. He'd go, oh, yeah, on the waterfront, Ilya Kazan. That's a good one. All right, let's watch this. So within 10 minutes, he'd fall asleep. And then Alec Baldwin would stay up and watch the entire film. And he goes, I would start to memorize. Like, this is before DVR or DVD, VHS, all this stuff. So he goes, you'd watch these old movies on TV. And that's where I start to recite them. And I'd write them down. I'd start mimicking them and go from there. And that's where his passion for film came from. Uh, but his entire journey, I mean, listen, he grew up in Long Island, uh, poor working class family. Like I said, his dad was a teacher. He, he worked a ton, but he wasn't making money for it. Like he taught the riflery class. He taught like football. Like he was doing all these other things. So he obviously was not in it for the money. He just really cared in being altruistic, which is something Baldwin has carried through if you see all of his philanthropic efforts. Uh, mom taking care of the family, six kids. What's notable about the memoirs, there's revelations that you weren't expecting. I did not know he had issues with drugs and alcohol. And he goes into detail about moving to L.A., and particularly one cocaine episode he has where he just he was just high out of his mind. And, and he prefaces it by saying, you know, I, I don't want to divulge this because it is so embarrassing. I'm so ashamed of my behavior. But this is what this 24-hour bender was like for me. So I did not know about the drug use. Uh, but then there's stuff that he leaves out. Like there is not one mention of the relationship he has with his brother's. Stephen Baldwin, Daniel Baldwin, Billy Baldwin. He'll mention like in passing, oh, Daniel and I went and played football, or then Billy and I went to L.A. Not even that much. No, he, Daniel and I played football, sure. Billy and, Billy and Mom were talking with Beth, his older sister he's very close to. But there's no comment on the fact that you come from, from a family of working class people, and all you guys are actors. Like not one mention, hey, Billy Baldwin was in Sliver. I was kind of interesting the way his relationship him and Aaron Sharon Stone. Daniel Baldwin was on one of my favorite shows, Homicide, Life on the Street. He was also in, uh, he played Gandolfini, like in The Sopranos, when Christopher writes that mocking horror movie. Basically, he's playing Gandolfini, like his mobster. Like, there's no mention of the fact Stephen Baldwin, I believe, is a big Trump supporter. And, like, there's nothing. There's not any of that stuff. So it's just weird. Uh, but again, it's his memoir. He can choose what he wants to do. At one point with the movies, it's very brief what he talks about. Beetlejuice is one paragraph. One paragraph. All he says is, what am I doing in this film? Or Michael Keaton and Catherine O'Hara and everybody else is like vamping it up and like really kind of being hamming it up off stage. And when I asked Tim Burton for direction and say, how am I doing? You know, he just kind of mumbles that the real life actors are scarier than the fake ones. And it's like, that's it. At one point, what's helpful is that he just goes through all of his movies from like 2000 on. He goes, all right, rapid fire paragraph on each. So for our purposes, if you have my interests, you'll want to know what he said about the aviator. So the aviator just put a paragraph because obviously I couldn't say no to working with Marty and it was amazing to work with Leonardo DiCaprio. He is a great actor and he really takes advantage of the opportunity sent towards him. Boom. That's the aviator. Departed. All he says is great cast was fun to be with those guys in Boston at that time. I had a more substantial role this time with Marty, which was nice. And I find it always unnerving how every Bostonian complains about Boston accents. You can never do it good enough for them. That's it. That's Alec Baldwin departed. Glenn Gary, he just says, I love Mammoth. He's like one of our great playwrights. Um, that scene, of course, with Blake's speech is not in the original play. And I wasn't sure how to play it. And I felt a little intimidated. This is Jack Lemon. This is Ed Harris. This is Alan Arkin. And the only advice that Mammoth and the director, James Foley, said were like, think of it like you're trying to help them. Like you were trying to motivate these guys to do this. You're not doing it from a bad place. I think that actually helped me help me deliver it because I didn't want to think of it as a psychopath because I'm like, this guy's just such a jerk. But I was like, all right, well, if, you know, to get over that intimidating feeling, the only way to help these guys is to be a jerk, to get the sales done. A, B, C, always be closing. He goes, that's how I approached it. But he doesn't, but he doesn't tell you like how many takes he did. He doesn't say how many, like, I would have a lot more details about the movies. He, he does mention he adores Pacino. I was upset he didn't actually get to work with Pacino in the movie. 
Uh, as far as favorite actors, he loves Anthony Hopkins. He said, of all the movies, The Edge was an amazing experience. He loves Canada. He said he loves shooting in Camera, Alberta. He's been many times since then uh, skiing, went to Banff, went to Lake Louise. He adored the scenery, and he says, I, and I love Tony. He tells a funny story about Anthony Hopkins. He says, like, his back was hurting one day, and he was lying down. His sister Beth came up to visit, and he said, I'll never forget. He tells the story better on his podcast. Here's the thing. But he goes, oh, Tony, this is my sister Beth. And he said, like, just like a great actor that he is, just snapped into character. He's like, Hello, Beth. Oh, no, hello, Elizabeth. So wonderful to meet you. <laughs> he goes, he was like writhing in pain moments ago. That's, uh, Tony, this is my sister, Beth. Elizabeth, so grand to meet you. <laughs> Alec has said me so many heartwarming things about you. Uh, so he loved Anthony Hopkins. But again, that movie, Mamet wrote the script. I like The Edge a lot, actually. I think it's a pretty good action movie. And he said that he called Mamet at one point. because like, Lee Tamahori, this director, is terrible. He doesn't know what he's doing. Like, he's making the movie. It's about two strong-willed guys and Elle McPherson in the middle. And that's the movie. And they just have to be stuck in the wilderness. But they're making it about this bear, Bart the Bear, chasing us. And Mamet goes, listen, all my scripts are orphans to me. I write the script. I give it to the director. They do what they want to do with it. Like, I don't really care. Baldwin's like, all right. So he goes, I just loved being with Tony. I loved the Canadian wilderness. I knew the film wasn't as good as I thought it could be. I enjoyed Jerry Goldsmith's score. And that's it. So if you're looking for just movies and anecdotes, you're not going to get them. But a fascinating life. He talks, like I said, about his drug use. He talks about the life in Hollywood, his family upbringing, how that influenced him, relationship with his parents, politics. He talks about for about a chapter, explains why he became uh, so invested in democratic causes, uh, stories about the Kennedys. Uh, he's got some stuff there about Obama as well. Again, and the biggest thing you're thinking right now is Trump. What about the Trump stories? Very little. T- half a page, just like, yeah, Lauren asked me to do the impression. I do the impression. He'll tell you more. Like, I was watching, I think it was Colbert last night. He was talking about the impression, how I try to, like, suck the chrome off a car. That's how I do the impression. Like, I just do the really big lips and that one eyebrow raised. And So there's no big details there. He just mentions in the book, everybody comes up to me. All these liberals in New York are like, thank you for doing this. Thanks for doing the impression. But again, he doesn't really... Go into detail about that. So I think it was amazing for a memoir, which I found captivating, and yet it was surprising that he took a lot of detours and avenues that I wasn't necessarily expecting. He also talked about his temper, and I, I could not wait. I'm like, when are we going to get the phone call? Remember the voice message he left his daughter where he called her a rude, thoughtless little pig? One of my favorite 60-minute segments ever, when Morley Safer talked to him about that. And Morley Safer so great. The late Morley Safer, Canadian icon on 60 Minutes. He was like, you know, for a brilliant man, why is Alec Baldwin so stupid? And then they, they play the clip, and he's like, Alec, what were you thinking? And he goes, you've never, you've never admonished your daughter like that, Morley? And he's like, not like that. And he's like, well, you, you're looking at me with that sanctimonious tone to you. Like, Baldwin's awesome. He's great vocabulary. I love his voice. Uh, so he mentions it. He, but he's kind of guy. Like he doesn't. Just, he's not completely unapologetic. Like the way he couches it is like, it was a terrible time for me. And what I said to Ireland, I regret. But as a therapist told me, you weren't talking to her. You were talking to somebody else. And then he goes into detail about like these capricious lawyers and how they're just absolute vermin, and he just despises his ex-wife's lawyers. Doesn't crush Kim Basinger, but he's honest. Like he mentions, when we fell in love, I knew it wasn't going to work, but I just tried to make it work. And she's needy, needs a lot of attention, would make things about herself a lot, very self-absorbed. Uh, but he, he just eviscerates her lawyers. Like if reading the book, you go, all right. He loves his daughter. He went to therapy for it. It was a bad message. He he said the relationship was irrevocably damaged, although it's still strong to this day. 
Kim, he clearly dismisses, but I've seen worse stuff. People say about their ex-wives, but the lawyers, like the, <laughs> the way he talks about lawyers and paparazzi is amazing. Paparazzi issue he mentions one time, and you know, a guy was he goes, listen, the guy literally came to my house, was taking pictures, and then fell on one of the neighbor's babies. So people try to say Alec Baldwin is a bad temper. There's like five times in my life people try to point to these instances. He's like, no, if you were in that situation, I'd like to see how you'd react. So he's not the type just to go, I have anger management. He goes, no, think of what I'm going through. And think of how you would react. Once in a while, yes, your button gets pushed and you say the wrong thing and you do the wrong thing. Mentions working for MSNBC, right? Because he's big in the politics. Why he got fired from that job. Like, I'm, it's just a fascinating lifestyle that Alec Baldwin has led. Even when he first started in theater, the amount of gay men that would hit on him. One guy said to him, he said, I don't have to believe this, but he says, is your chest? And he just stared shocked and he goes, because if so, I'd like you to. Another time, a guy who he was friends with started – just grabbed him and kissed him and Baldwin – like just making out. Baldwin pushed him away and goes, listen, since you're my friend, I'm going to let that one go. You do that again, I'm going to break every bone in your body. <laughs> the life of Alec Baldwin and his memoir, nevertheless. Questions, Dan? Yeah, what did he say about uh, probably I would say his most popular character, Jack Donaghy in 30 Rock? Playing like an ultra conservative when he's an ultra liberal. Yeah, he mentions a bit of that. He really praises Tina Fey. Again, he's very generous in the amount of support and encouragement he gives to those around him. And he goes, that's all Tina. He goes, it's all the writing. He goes, I'm not a funny guy. I really am not. You can't just tell me to be funny. But if I have a great script and her writing was so clear that I was able to do it. And he'll give like, again, two lines on each person. Tracy Morgan's kind of crazy and wild, but he has a big heart and I love working with him. Jane Krakowski's like this, et cetera. But he's, he's all about Tina's writing was so much fun. And he said the big thing was he wanted to be in one location. He never thought about doing TV, but he wanted to be in New York, close to his family. And on a very uh, redemptive tone, he's found happiness now. His second marriage, Hilaria, who he loves, he mentions her all the time. He's got three young kids. Like, he's almost 60. And I think he's got like a five-year-old, a three-year-old, and a one-year-old. So it's a nice second act in his life, which he says is keeping him young, which some people say he sells out, but that's why he does like this game show. It's like, well, hang on. Like, I got I to take care of these kids. Again, for a great actor, though, and I think Alec Baldwin is a great actor. Dan, think about this. He's never had a great leading role. Like, what was the well, best? He was in uh, The Hunt for Red October, Which he right? talks, but Harrison Ford screwed him out of that. Apparently, like, he wanted the role, and they said, well, it's kind of Alex. He was like, F him. Like, that's the quote from Harrison Ford. And years later, Baldwin saw him, and Harrison Ford kind of, like, mumbled hello, and Baldwin's like, no, I know you're a snake. Like, he makes that clear in the book. Like, I know what you're about. You're Harrison Ford, one of the biggest stars ever, and you completely stole me out of the role. Like, whatever. But he doesn't really blame him because it's the studio heads. It was a negotiating ploy. They wanted Harrison fine. But you're right. That could have set him on a different path. Like, he was the hunt for Red October. He was the face, Jack Ryan. And instead, like, you think of that. Like, there's a lot of bad movies. Like, he's clear about that. Malice. Like, there's, there's some Heaven's Prisoners. Ghost of Mississippi was a lead role, and he admits the script is very flat. It's supposed to be about civil rights. It's all about the white heroes rather than the black civil rights activists. Like, what's the great leading role? Out there isn't. It's it's 30 Rock, which is ensemble. It's Glenn Gary, which is ensemble. The Edge I like a lot, but it's co-starring him and Anthony Hopkins. It's not a great movie. The Cooler, he was nominated for an Oscar, supporting role with William H. Macy. He's never had a great leading role. He's in that movie with Meryl and Steve Martin, too, right? It's complicated. Again, ensemble, great, very funny. But yeah, for a guy who I think is a great actor, I do think so. Uh, He does talk about Streetcar Named Desire, which he did on stage, so I'll give him that one. I haven't actually seen him reprise Stanley Kowalski, but that would be the one. But check out Alec Baldwin's Nevertheless. Actors in three words. All right, buddy, what do we got? All right, he got the full actor spotlight treatment one time, but we never did the three words. So Russell Crowe. Brawny, masculine, and Maximus. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right, pretty good. <laughs> Naomi Watts. 
Impossible, which is a movie called The Impossible, because I think it's impossible how she did not receive an Oscar for that movie. She's amazing. Big tsunami film, buried, buried beneath the wreckage. People didn't pay attention to that. Impossible is one. Liev is number two. Married to Liev Schreiber, one of our favorites. And three is Graceful. Tall, willowy, I find her very graceful. I'm surprised you didn't go English right off the bat like you <laughs> normally do. Uh, third one is Christian Bale. For a wonderful actor, the first word that comes to mind is temperamental. Like that video that was released, and I'm screaming at the cinematographer, I'll never forget. When I think about actors, I'm like, why could you ever lose your temper to that level? So I will call Christian Bale temperamental. Number two is method. Stories always out them about him being a method actor. And number three is fighter, in honor of the fighter. Could have gone with Bruce Wayne. But Could have gone fighter. Batman. And yeah. did you see he's going to play D- uh, Dick Cheney? <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> Isn't that unbelievable? <laughs> But I read that story today, and I, I had to click on the link three times to make sure it wasn't lying to me. Yeah, sir, I cannot wait. Get your tickets now. Him is Dick Cheney. Oh, my goodness. Uh, fourth one, Jennifer Connelly. I only have two for this, so you have to give me one. I got one ready. One is unabashed. Like, always naked in her movie. Reckoning for a dream, like, full frontal nudity. Like, unbelievable. Like, wow, like, unabashed. Like, normally, for a very pretty actress, they don't want to get naked. But Jennifer Connelly's like, nah, let's do it. Unabashed is one. Number two is beautiful, double meaning. Not only is she beautiful, but a beautiful mind. Of yep, course, one with of the Russell Oscar. Crowe. And give me a third one. See, they're, they're all, we're all along the same lines here, and now it's not going to be good. I was going to go sneaky hot because you see her at the start of a movie, and you're like, oh, she, you know, she's kind of pretty. As the movie goes on and on, you're like, oh, my God, she is beautiful. <laughs> like, she's in the movie with uh, with Leo. What's the one? The Blood Diamond. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Love her. Yeah. Couldn't get enough, and she gets more attractive as the movie goes on. We, we should get a better word than that. Okay. I got nothing. I, I just go with progressive. Like it progresses. Oh, yeah, that, that makes us <laughs> sound better, I guess. Oh, what's the last one? Uh, your favorite, John C. Riley. I love John C. Riley. One is Goofy. I could just think of him in Boogie Nights. He's just so damn goofy. The Lobster he was great in. I, I just think, especially the films he's done with P.T. Anderson, Hard Eight, very good. Now, even though he's goofy, Stealth is a good one because he's under the radar, man. Like he's actually a really good actor. The fact that Marty cast him in Gangs of New York. He said when he got that call, he's like, wait, Martin Scorsese wants me in a movie? Like, this is unbelievable. And he actually has some pretty good dramatic scenes in those movies, P.T. Anderson. Magnolia, like for this guy who's this heart-sick, you know, vulnerable policeman, there's some scenes that are genuinely moving and touching with John C. Riley. So I go goofy, I go stealth, and three is Play-Doh. His face looks like it's made of Play-Doh. Oh, that's not bad. I would just say the magic man yeah. from Talladega Nights. <laughs> or Shake and Bake. Shake and Bake is a good Shake one. and Bake. Okay. We'll add Shake and Bake as well for three words. A Scorsese story. So Michael Balhaus passed away. If you're Martin Scorsese film like I am, you know the name right away. He shot so many great Scorsese films, and he passed away at the age of 81, the German cinematographer. So today's Scorsese story, a little more somber as I want to give him his due. I think of Michael Balhaus, and I think of Scorsese, and the first thing I think of, of course, is Goodfellas and the way that he moved the camera in that film. You know, if you look at one shot in a Scorsese film, you'd probably just say the Copa shot in Goodfellas, and that was Bauhaus. And, you know, he had said that the shot is, is, is so great because it works on multiple levels because it's – you're seeing Henry – the shot itself is seductive because it's just beautiful watching a tracking shot for three minutes, but it's also Henry Hill seducing Karen into this world of gangsters because he knows everybody. I mean, that's it's the quintessential example – of art form matching the technical expertise. And, you know, when you think of cinematographers, I can't remember, I believe it was one of the, it wasn't Owen Gleiber, it may have been Ty Burr Entertainment Weekly, who once said that, you know, great cinematographers, 
um, you know, they have the souls of artists, but their brains are like technicians. You know, like they have to look at things with this lens and this color and this saturation. But deep in the heart, you know, they're like the director they're, because they're also trying to satisfy their vision. More than 100 films Ballhouse did, nominated for three Academy Awards, worked with Mike Nichols, Francis Ford Coppola, Paul Newman, Robert Redford, Barry Levinson, among others. Uh, Marty at Reiner Werner Fassbender, the two directors he's most closely associated with. With Scorsese, Last Temptation of Christ, Goodfellas, Gangs in New York, The Departed, uh, among those, was not nominated for The Departed, which is amazing. Marty won the Oscar for that one, but didn't actually, Ballhouse did not get nominated. His Academy Award nominations were for Broadcast News, The Fabulous Baker Boys, and Gangs in New York. He was not nominated for cinematography for Goodfellas and The Departed, which, speaking of Christian Bale playing Dick Cheney, I had to click on that three times and make, wait, cinematography wasn't nominated for those films? Gangs in New York, another beautifully shot film, and he, of course, deserved that nomination because the camera work in that movie is amazing. Hallmarks of Mr. Bauhaus's style, this is from the New York Times, though, but includes shots so fluid that the camera, a normally unwieldy creature, takes on the persona of a dancer. Over the years, critics concurred he conceived some of the most emblematic camera movements in world cinema. Scorsese said about him, we started working together in the 80s during a low ebb in my career, and it was Michael who really gave me back my sense of excitement in making a movie. You know, for a cinematographer, you've, you've got to have film stock, the lighting, camera angles, the rhythm and flow of camera movements. And Bauhaus really understood that, particularly, I think, with Marty, um, all those signature shots. Uh, about the Copa shot, he says specifically, like a third person, the camera follows just behind them as they enter the club to the rear door and pass down labyrinthine back halls through the kitchen with Hale glad-handing staff members and strewing money in his wake. The scene shot with steady cam is a single, uninterrupted take lasts some three minutes. There is almost no dialogue, thanks in no small part to Mr. Bauhaus's choreography for the camera. There does not need to be. The sinuous shot, which shows people parting for Hill like the Red Sea, unequivocally evokes his passage into the dark, glittering world of organized crime. How great are Obit writers, by the way? Is that all from the New York Times Obit? That yeah. is incredible. Right? The first line was great, too, about the rhythm of a dancer. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. The writing's out of control. Amazing. Um, talks about this story just with the fact he worked in Germany and then uh, came over, like I said, to the U.S. And, and the collaborations with Marty. Also, The Color of Money, The Age of Innocence, which is a beautifully shot film. This is from Vincent Camby, longtime film critic at The Times. He was talking about Bellhouse's work in After Hours, which I will review at some point on Scorsese's stories. Mr. Bellhouse's camera takes on an aggressive, willful personality of its own. Racing across images like a dog straining at a leash to scrutinize small details or watching with rapt attention. I mean, <laughs> to a $20 bill floating to earth, the camera plays the role of a narrator whose manner is amused, skeptical, and not at all inclined to allow itself to become sentimentally involved. More films Bauhaus shot. Baby, It's You, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, Bram Stoker's Dracula, Quiz Show, which I'd forgotten, Working Girl, Primary Colors, Death of a Salesman, the TV edition with Dustin Hoffman, uh, Papa Don't Preach, the music video, which was directed by James Foley, who directed Glengarry Glen Ross. Bauhaus actually shot this. So it's an amazing life. Uh, last thought here is Mr. Bauhaus made plain in interviews and throughout his work. The photographic stasis that some cinematographers seem to favor was emphatically not for him. If it's a movie he told the magazine American Cinematographer in 2007, it's got to move. Rest in peace to Michael Bauhaus and all the great films he made with Martin Scorsese. What's our question, Dan, for those who want to win the Scorsese? Was I supposed to have that prepared? Okay, fine. How many, I'll just say how many films. It's a real easy one. If you listen to this, then you'll know. How many films were shot by Michael Bauhaus for Martin Scorsese? That's your question. Do you know the answer or do I have to look that up? <laughs> I know the answer. Okay. I, will, I will tell you as soon as we're done. Tweet us that answer and you will win 
Martin Scorsese, a personal journey through American films. Just the number of movies he shot for Marty. I'm Adam Amberg. Thank you so much for listening to Cinephile. Next up, we got a big-time guest coming through. He's really funny and going to be very entertaining, so I cannot wait for that. I'll see you at the movies. Don't miss out on the next episode of Cinephile. Subscribe to the Adnan Verk Movie Podcast by clicking the Listen tab in the ESPN app. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m., and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com.